Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot, we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Connor Roy may not have been the most important character on Succession, but oh man, he was almost always the funniest. I would love to get to Europe. Can I creep up through the underbelly? Come up through the Balkans, a couple of senior departures, Berlin by Christmas. They may be willing to talk Slovenia or Slovakia. Mm-hmm. Mm, yeah, I think I'm a no on the slows. What about South Korea? Hmm? South Korea. Top 10 GDP, major geopolitical player. I feel like that would be tough. North Korea. Easy, my liege. You don't know. Nobody knows. That's the point. I could open it up like Nixon did China. Khan, they're not going to put you anywhere with nukes. Well, that's insulting. I don't think I want to go anywhere that doesn't have nukes. All right. Well, how do you like Oman? Oman? Yeah. Poor man Saudi Arabia or rich man Yemen? Hmm. I have to check. See what my woman thinks about Oman. <laughs> nice. <laughs> This is The Last Laugh. I'm Matt Wilstein from The Daily Beast, and that was Alan Ruck as Connor Roy on election night in the final season of Succession. I have wanted to have Alan on this podcast for a long time, and I am so glad we finally made it happen just a few days after the show's series finale aired. As he tells me in this episode, Connor Roy was the role he had been waiting his entire career for. And it also meant that he will now go down in history as more than just Ferris Bueller's sad best friend. We get into all of it in this conversation, including Alan's reaction to the finale, what he thinks the future holds for Connor and Willa, how he landed the role in the first place, and how Connor evolved from a punchline to something much more meaningful by the end of the series. If, like me, you can't stop thinking about succession, I think you are really going to enjoy this talk. Here's me with Alan Ruck. Welcome. I'm so happy to have you here. And uh, yeah, I wanted to to just jump right into this uh, finale that we all just watched. And I, I wanted to hear about your experience watching it. I know you've said that you watched the show as it airs. So did you watch it Sunday night? And, and what was that like for you? I actually did not watch it Sunday night because we had some stuff going on, uh, just family stuff, and it got to be late. And it was like, I don't want to do that now. So I woke up <laughs> uh, Monday morning and like at eight o'clock in the morning, I watched the show <laughs> and uh, I was I was messed up all day. <laughs> yeah, it was tough. <laughs> you know? I mean, I just got the blues pretty hard. I thought that Jesse and and all of our writers did a beautiful job of sewing everything up in a way that made perfect sense, Uh, you know, and honored sort of the spirit of the show. There was no happy ending. I mean, except for Tom. I Uh, guess. I don't know how happy he's going to be. Be careful what you wish for, right? Because you get it. Um, So I thought it was really excellent in that regard that... um, some things are just left ambivalent, you, you know, and, and that's kind of been Jesse's approach to the show is that he's fascinated by all the different reactions to the different plot points, the different events, the different characters. Um, I, I was just at a school function yesterday for my daughter and a woman came up to me and said, I hate Shiv. I hate her. And I was like, OK, I mean, you know, that's <laughs> do you get do you get that a lot? People coming up to you with uh, strong opinions about the show? Um, most most of the people that I meet really enjoy it. I do have some close friends, though, that are like, couldn't couldn't do it. Couldn't do it. Um, some people that I really, you know, love and admire. And they're like, they were too mean. I don't I just don't want to spend hours of my life watching people be miserable to each other. That has never bothered me. <laughs> I don't I think, you know. I think it's great. If the story's good, I, I don't. I don't need a hero. Um, well, but, uh, uh, yeah, yeah, I, I could have. Uh, I could have used more Connor in the finale. I don't know about you, but we did get one. You know, great last scene with him. 
Um, you know, he's he's headed to Melania Trump's homeland, which is very <laughs> exciting. Well, I'd like to get rid of pretty much everything. I have some pretty cool stuff coming in, like a um, cow print couch, about, like, wow. yay long. Great. Con, you don't want to keep more for... Well, we're planning on if, when Mencken comes through, um, we're actually uh, experimenting with an idea. I have a play reading in six to eight months, and uh, Con is going to Slovenia, and I'll be working on that, so we're going to try... Um, yeah, you know, we're, we're uh, really excited how this long-distance thing can uh, add another dimension. Yeah, know. add a little spice, yeah, you know, yeah, as we, you know, get deeper into the marriage. Yeah, that's sexy. They call that the second week itch, I believe. Rome. Yeah. We're excited. Yeah. I heard the latest about the uh, Wisconsin court thing. I'm sorry, what court thing? Uh, it's a hiccup. Just mm. a little hiccup for Jared, I think. Okay. How do you think the future is going to go for, for Connor and Willa with their, their long-distance relationship and what's ahead? I don't actually think it bodes well. Um, you know, uh, Jesse's uh, big um, theory, I think it's a life theory with him, is that uh, people don't change. And I actually, it, for the characters in this show, I think that's absolutely true. So Connor and Willa had a really sweet moment, a, a brief a bit of time where they were like together and they were partners and they were equals. And they had that great scene together on, on the day of the wedding death. And uh, then they got married, but you know, I think she's getting scared. She's getting scared. Like I'm, I'm going to spend the rest of my life with this guy. We're going to Slovenia. I don't want to go to Slovenia. I want to do my plays. You know? And I think Connor was really counting on her coming along. I think without her, he's just going to be a mess. So, I don't know. I mean, either Mencken makes it and, and Connor will go to Slovenia, but I don't think he'll last there too long. I think he'll relinquish his post pretty quickly if, if uh, Willa doesn't come to see him very often. And then um, if he doesn't take the position or if Mencken loses and Connor's around all the time in New York, that's probably going to drive Willa out of her mind. So, <laughs> I think so. I don't know. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not that hopeful for them, really. Yeah, I was sad we didn't get to see the the redecorated apartment too. That that <laughs> held some promise, I think. Yeah, I would love to see that uh, cow print couch. Yay long. <laughs> um, we get we get that scene with with you in the apartment, and then there's sort of this other scene that we see through the TV screen of this virtual dinner with Brian Cox's character. What are your when did you film that, and what are your memories of, of filming that really what turned out to be a really sweet scene with with yeah. Brian and some of the other um, actors on the show? We did that my absolute last day of work, and and then we we filmed the scene of me and my siblings watching it later that day. Did it all in one day because um, uh, Brian had different things going on, and he could show up for a day, and that's that's when we did it, and it happened to be my last day of work me and Justine. So the whole thing was bittersweet. It was, uh, it was a fun thing to do. It was tricky because we actually filmed that whole, um, virtual dinner with dad thing on an iPhone. Oh, wow. Just to give it that, you know, <laughs> yeah. to give it some, uh, reality. And, um, Justine for much of it was the camera operator. She did a really good job. There was, there was one point where, uh, that didn't wound up making it into the show where they hand, she hands the phone to me so I can film her doing like famous quotations from Shakespeare and so forth. <laughs> um, and I, me and cell phones, me and technology, this is not a marriage made in heaven. <laughs> I always like, if somebody hands me a phone, I grab it the wrong way and I'm in some different app. You know, I do something like that. And that's what happened. Um, <laughs> you, you messed up her take? I, I fucked it all up. <laughs> <laughs> um, we did get to see you do your Logan Roy impression. Was that a little uh, intimidating to do that in front of Brian Cox? No, because actually I think something that Brian and Logan share in common is like grow a pair. Yeah. <laughs> you know, just, just <laughs> do it. Just do it. You know, go ahead. Mock me out. Let's see what you got. Um <laughs> So anyway, he's uh, Brian's a wonderful guy and he's, he's got a great sense of humor about himself, you know, and um, so it wasn't really intimidating at all. You know, it was great fun. I give you, ladies and gentlemen, I am a little teapot. Oh, good. Okay. In the manner of Mr. Logan Roy. Ooh. Very good. Let's see oh, my gosh. So, I am a little teapot. Fuck off! <laughs> Short and stout. What did you fucking call me? Here's my handle. Here's my fucking spout. When I get steamed up, you can hear me shout. Frank Vernon is a moron. Carl Miller is a kraut. 
What do you think that scene tells us about uh, Logan Roy's relationship with Connor, which has always seemed so strained and so distant in previous seasons and episodes? And I think for me, at least watching it, you realize that they did have a closeness that maybe we never got to see compared to his relationship with the other kids. Is that how you took it? Absolutely. I think we saw a few hints of this along the way in the first season, uh, the sad sack wasp trap, you know, the uh, the reckney ball that the old man put me in charge of. There was a scene we had in the car where we're just talking about things and, you know, like my my political plans and all this kind of stuff. And he's very patient and he just says, well, why don't we just concentrate on one thing at a time? And, you know. <laughs> So I, I think over the years, I think Logan had he care. I think he carried some guilt about Connor because yeah. he had this boy with this woman and the marriage was a disaster. And the boy, I mean, Connor was probably a special needs kid. I mean, ADHD and other things and, and never properly addressed. And uh, then the old man d- divorces the mom and she's in and out of institutions and she's got pills and vodka problems. and. Um, so I think that on some level, uh, Logan has carried a bit of guilt about uh, Connor. And even though he's a bitter disappointment, <laughs> you know, because, I mean, if it doesn't pertain to the business, Logan's not that interested. Um, but uh, I think we we had some moments where uh, it was very relaxed and he was he could sort of let his guard down around Connor because it didn't matter. Yeah, yeah, there was not that same pressure that with the with the other kids for them to become something. He kind of felt like Connor, uh, despite his ambitions to be president, had maybe become what he was going to become. Well, yeah, I, I think uh, the Shakespeareans called that being a bit fond, you know, a bit uh, uh, like slightly touched. And Con- uh, uh, Connor's not stupid. He does some really dumb things, but he's not stupid. He reads. He reads stuff that probably. It, I once described him as being um, like a pack of um, trivial pursuit cards that's all mixed up and doesn't make any sense. And I think his head is jammed full of just arcane and weird, obscure knowledge that doesn't really add up to much of anything. You know, he's just who he is and he's he's a little scrambled. And um, I think, uh, you know, Logan on some level, too, is like, well, this is my boy who's touched. <laughs> this is this is this is my simple boy. Um, I feel like you've brought a lot of yourself to this character over the seasons. What do you think it was about you that made Jesse Armstrong, the the creators of the show, you know, Adam McKay, want you for this role? What what did they see in you that they that they saw in Connor? Do you think I, you'll really have to ask them? I'm I'm not sure. I think um, you know. At one point, Kieran said, "I don't think they knew who Connor was until you showed up." He was basically saying that I'm Connor, so I don't know how I feel about that. <laughs> yeah. um, but um, just in in the thing, the the email my uh, uh, a, a manager sent to me before the audition, it said he's not in line to take over the company. This part will grow over time, and so uh, good news, bad news, not not key to the central drama, not really involved in the central drama, but also didn't have the pressure of being involved in the central drama. So it was kind of a dream part. I got to fly in for a few days, say some really insane shit, uh, <laughs> kind of a license to steal, and then um, go away. And then they they chop all the wood and carry all the water and keep the story going forward. You know, um, I'm not exactly what it. Uh, you know, they come from comedy. Both, I mean, Adam and Jesse both come from comedic backgrounds, and uh, so maybe they just felt like I could handle the the lighter sillier moments and uh, i'm I, you have to ask them i don't know <laughs> did you ever have misgivings about not being in the show more or getting scenes oh. that you really loved get cut out or, or things like that because there are you know there are stretches that you're that you're not in very much and then there's some episodes that you're more central to um yeah. how did you feel about that well in the second season uh the first season had gone you know very well and i had had some stuff to do uh, and then the second season started and I had I was in a bunch of like family scenes, group scenes, but I didn't have any scenes that were just like me and another person. You know, I was always just like saying some random stuff in the midst of a gathering. Um, and for like it was like three episodes. I didn't do anything. And I actually wrote to um, Jesse and to Mark Mylod, and I said, what do you think about killing me off? And they, they were and I'm grateful. 
they said, no, 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 no. We need you. We need you. And, and there's not anything right now. Uh, not much right now, but there will be more later. And they were true to their word, you know, and um, there's just an awful, awful lot of story to tell. And so I, I kind of got my head out of my ass a little bit about that. and was like, right. I mean, this is just this is my part in this play. And so let's see where it goes. And then, you know, I'm, I'm thrilled that they they didn't take me up on my offer to. You really you really felt like you wanted them to kill you off because you didn't have well, enough to do. It's vanity. It's vanity. At that point, uh, it, it that point uh, of the second season, at the end of the first season, we had made this big splash. It was kind of a slow roll. And then it just took off like a rocket. Definitely. And yeah. The reason I uh, the, the moment I kind of knew that we were a hit show was at the read through for the first episodes of the second season. And one of our producers, Kevin Messick, had the succession theme song, Nick Bertel's music on his phone. And he was just before we started reading, he just took his phone and started waving it in the air, playing <laughs> the music. And I'm like, oh, man, this is huge. This is this is a real thing, you know, and my vanity was. Uh, I'm on maybe the best show on television right now, but people are like, who do you play? What do you, oh, oh the, yeah. And and it, it, the way the show is written is the way that a lot of people reacted to my presence or lack of presence on the show. They're like, oh yeah, Kendall, the oldest son. Like, <laughs> yeah, the no. oldest son. <laughs> no. So, I mean, that was, that was a true thing of, of me being like, no. <laughs> um <laughs> So it was just, uh, it was just that it was just my vanity of wanting to do more in an excellent, excellent show. There is that great breaking point in episode in Italy that I guess is in season three, right? Where you assert yourself as the eldest son and you really kind of give them a piece of your mind for the first time in that way. I am the eldest son. Well, yeah, obviously calm, but you know what he means. I am the eldest son. And no one told me about this fucking merger of fucking equals. And what if I want to take over because I am the eldest son? All right. Easy, easy Con. I'm the eldest okay. son. Okay. I'm the eldest son. Whoa. And yeah. I must be considered and I need to be taken into account. Con, we're, we're talking about what I actually lost. Shut up. What, you're hurt? I didn't see Pop for three years. But your spoon wasn't shiny enough. Huh? It is not all about you. I thought you loved me. Asshole. I do love you. I love all three of you pricks, but what do I get from you chumps but chump change? Fucking chump change. Well, fuck you. I'm here for your mom's wedding, and I proposed to my fiance. And no one has said congratulations. No one. So did that feel cathartic in a way to, to get that off your chest as Connor? It was thrilling. It was thrilling. <laughs> and uh, first of all, so so pleased to have been given some teeth. You know, Jesse gave Connor some teeth in that. And he stood up for himself because up until that point, he'd been kind of a verbal punching bag. You know, he'd say something that was just off the wall. And then Kendall would quickly say, you're a moron. And, <laughs> you know, and then that was it. There was no like there was no snappy rejoinder. There was no, you know, cool comeback for Connor. As opposed to somebody like Roman, who just would have been like, you know, whipped out his word sword and uh, started dueling with Kendall. Um, so, yeah, that was uh, that it was easy to do that scene. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, for me, I think the, uh, the the Connor insult that will always uh, stand out to me is Shiv calling him the first pancake, which right. uh, I think really says it all. Right. Yeah, it's it's. Uh, it's many things at once. It's brutal. It's very funny. And it couldn't be more true, <laughs> you know, and um, he came out funny. You know, he had a mom with uh, mental challenges and had an absentee father who in his way has had his own mental challenges. He he became a tough, hard person very, very early in life. And, um you know, he never let go of that. He never, he never rel relinquished his armor. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Uh, Kendall is of course still calling himself the, the eldest boy in the, in the finale. Yeah. And so that felt like a callback as well to, to that conversation. And he can't let go of, of that as his identity. Um, yeah. I mean, the, the evolution of Connor 
over the seasons, I think was very significant. And he, I think, does go from a punchline in some ways to someone much more sympathetic, despite his very questionable political uh, views, I would say. Um, but he he is very, you know, there is a sweetness to him that really comes through, um, I think, especially in those scenes with Willa um, in this final season. Um, how did you how did you react to that and, and think about his evolution and, and giving him more depth um, as it progressed? You know, maybe one of the reasons that these guys wanted me to do this part is just like looking at me. I don't think I give off meanness, <laughs> you know, <laughs> you would yeah. be like, oh, be, be scared of that guy. He, you know, he might fuck you up. I don't think I give that off. Yeah. And, um, maybe as a contrast to someone like Brian Cox. Or or the, has the that kids. In him. I mean, they all they're very edgy, uh, sharp tongued people. And Connor is not mean. He maybe doesn't have that chip, you know, and it's not that he's not selfish. It's not that he's not a sociopath because he is. I mean, he doesn't know how regular people live. He, he, he has no clue. You know, in his concession speech, he's like, hey, I'm a millionaire. Sorry, I'm billionaire. Sorry. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, mean, yeah. I happen to be a billionaire. Sorry. But honestly, America, you flunked it. I guess you're going to have to find some other poor mooks paps to suckle on. Okay. The corrupt bipartisan system zombie All right. marches on. And so I call out to my friends tonight, to my people. I say, conheads, I salute you. And America, be afraid. Be warned. For the conheads are coming. Thank you. God bless America. So he is entitled. He's just as entitled as the other kids. It's just that he's not... He's not edgy in that way. He's not, he's not, his heart isn't hard. So maybe that's why they hired me. I don't know. They're like, <laughs> oh, he looks like a softy. <laughs> uh, you mentioned the concession speech and I, I love that scene and the whole presidential run storyline of this last season. Um, why do you think that Connor wanted to run for president? Why, why was that something that, that got in his head? Because it's been in his head from the beginning of the show, really. Absolutely. It was uh, when I auditioned for Adam McKay, I actually I was it was a long it's a long story. It was a rush job and I didn't actually have a chance to look at the, the material that much. But there was that line that cracked me up. It says, hey, hey, pop, there's this job I want. It's called president of the United States. And then later they, they had me say that to to Willa instead. Okay, let's go. Here. Right by the Kings. This is perfect. OK. OK. OK, listen. I think I finally found a job I want to do. Okay, what is it? President of the United States. <laughs> but uh, I said, he's he's putting on Logan, right? And, and Adam McKay said, no, 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 no. Deadly serious. And um, so I think just like all, just like the other kids, they all desperately wanted validation and, an aff and affection from Logan, which was, and, and Connor knew better by this point, really, that that was never going to happen, you know? But it didn't stop him from wanting it. And so he was like, what's the biggest, craziest thing I could pull off that would make the old man sit down and say, wow, I didn't think he had it in you, you know, because go big or go home. Right. So <laughs> um, it was all about that. And so then the after Logan died, I think that thing really lost its luster, but it was still in motion. Uh, and um it's just that kind of thing that you do when you lose someone. It's it's a very human thing to try to move forward and do some positive, do some living, you know, move forward. And so I think that um, he was like, well, I might as well see it through, you know, and maybe maybe the old man, wherever he is, will look down and see me achieving greatness. <laughs> what do you think Connor would have said at Logan's funeral if he had been allowed to deliver his, you know, formally inventive eulogy. <laughs> well, th there was there was a prop thing that was put in my hand for that little uh, scene in the vestibule with uh, Siobhan, where I say I have this thing. It's like 20 pages long. Um, and it was all drivel. It was all just it was just a stream of consciousness, basically. And I think he would have um, said a, a, a number of things to like deify Logan, you know, mm -hmm. And then just would have, uh, just as in the concession speech, just gone off on tangents, you know, blaming people, shaming people, um, warning people. Um, I think it would have been a lot of that. It would have, it would have been Connor's fire and brimstone. <laughs> yeah. How do you feel like the show 
changed for you after Logan Roy's death, after Brian Cox, you know, wasn't in it in that central way anymore? Do you feel like there was a a void and it kind of had to end at that point? Or or how did you think about that? Yeah, I did. I mean, uh, Jesse told us almost a year ago, uh, uh, not too long before we started reading through uh, the first episode of the last season here, uh, that Logan was going to die in the third episode. And of course, he'd, he'd spoken with Brian before and they'd gone through it, the whole thing. And it's like, if if the sun is extinguished, then what do the planets do? You know, they, they've lost their they've lost the thing that really uh, has held them together. Uh, and uh, it absolutely had to end because it, I, I don't know what the show would have been had it continued past this point. I, it, it wouldn't have made any sense to me. I want to ask about working with Jeremy Strong as well, who to me has just delivered, you know, one of the the greatest TV performances of all time as this central character in the in the show. Um, a lot has obviously been written and talked about around his methods as an actor. And I wanted to just hear from you. Do you feel like that's been overblown? Do you think that um, there's something that gets lost in that conversation around, you know, what who he is as a as an actor and as a coworker? He is a fabulously talented actor, and he truly believes to give his best performance, he's got to sort of stay in his zone with no distractions, kind of 24-7, kind of. And um, as you say, the work is gorgeous. I mean, he just delivered week after week, moment after moment, and you never doubt him for a second. He's really gifted. Every actor is different. That's what he needs to get into his zone. That's fine with me, as long as it doesn't fuck up my action, as long as he's like, you know, and thank God I've never worked with people like this, but I've heard of people like this who say things like, is that the way you're going to do that? Because there's this thing I want to do. And if you do that, it, it messes me up. and I can't, you know, so they're trying to, you know, yeah, Jeremy, pull the strings. Yeah. 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 Jeremy was never manipulative like that. He, he never did anything like that. Um and look, the, the truth is you work with somebody, even if you love them, uh, there's things that they're going to do that are going to irritate you. I mean, um, like he said of Kieran, Kieran's not encumbered by too much analysis. And for me, I, I felt like Kieran in the show is like, you do your work at home. And when you get to work, you kind of get up on the diving board and you jump off and you see what happens. And hopefully there's water in the pool, you know, but it was kind of like having accidents. You know, everybody comes in with their agenda and you just go and you see how it shakes out. Um, and in this show, I, I was more like, uh, uh, Kieran's approach. I mean, you, you, you think about it constantly. I mean, we're all very self-involved actors, you know, as a rule. So you get this part and it's, it's like, I, Oh, I, I have to do this or there's, I have to be in this emotional state. You do all your work at home because, um, of ego, <laughs> you know, and you want people to see you at your best. Right. But, um, you know, uh, um, Brian in the first, uh, season, I think it was in that fourth episode in the Reckney ball episode, uh, Jeremy was having a little trouble sort of justifying some blocking. It was, it was not sitting well with him, you know, and our director, uh, Adam Arkin that time they were going over it and they were like, we were in the middle of shooting and then shooting stopped because they had to resolve this problem. And Brian looked at me and he said, I believe in less talk and more do. (laughs) (laughs) And that's Brian, you know? I mean, he's been an actor for 60 years. So uh, he has his ways of doing things. and, and, And sometimes, and I'm sure that, you know, that might piss off somebody else who's like, no, we need to talk about this. We need to, you know, but, um, I didn't feel that way in this. I just, the writing was so good. The writing was so good. You would re- you knew exactly where you were supposed to be emotionally. There was no, uh, 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 big research to do about like, oh, where is he? It was just, just boldly apparent. Easy. When the writing is good, it is so much easier to act. Coming up. A lot of people have drawn a parallel between Cameron Fry and Connor Roy. But what does the man who played them both decades apart think? And later, how Succession has transformed Alan Ruck's career and what he really wants to do next. Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. At Mint Mobile, we like to do the opposite of what Big Wireless does. They charge you a lot. 
we charge you a little. So naturally, when they announced they'd be raising their prices due to inflation, we decided to deflate our prices due to not hating you. That's right. We're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. If you're enjoying this episode and want to hear more, please make sure you are following The Last Laugh wherever you get your podcasts. By subscribing to The Last Laugh, you can listen to our episodes with other HBO stars like Veep's Julia Louis-Dreyfus, Barry's Bill Hader, and Curb Your Enthusiasm's J.B. Smoove, along with everything else from our free archive. And you'll be the first to hear new episodes when they drop every Tuesday. And while you're at it, please leave a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. Let us know how much you love the show and who you want to hear next. Now, back to Alan Ruck. I was curious if you are aware of this online theory that there's some sort of connection between Cameron Fry and Connor Roy, that there's a, a through line there, whether they're the same person or, or have, a, have some connection. Is that something that you've, uh, you've seen? And, and I, do you have any thoughts about it? Well, well, people have mentioned, you know, two messed up sons of very wealthy fathers, and, you know, all, all the privileges, none of the love. Um, I'm waiting for somebody to come to really flesh that theory out. Maybe you could do it. Flesh that theory <laughs> out, like they did the, the, the Fight Club theory of. of right. Uh, yeah. Sure. <laughs> yeah. So I'm, I'm waiting for some, some very clever person to, to flesh that the the Connor uh, Cameron connection. Yeah, well, there's all yeah, there's the other theory that uh, that Ferris is a figment of Cameron's imagination. That's that's the other right. one that, that people like to talk about. Yeah. Um, yeah, I mean that's a that's a movie that you know I think I've seen more than than almost any other, and I think a lot of people can probably say the same. Um, you know, I imagine that because it was so early in your career, you couldn't have known how much cultural influence it would have and and how much people would still be talking about it so many years later um did you did it feel special in that way while you were making it what what stands out for you when you think about it now well i remember i felt very lucky that i was going to be doing this movie with matthew who i just spent 9 months uh, doing a play with you know uh and so that was just easy and i also was really thrilled because i i had the dramatic part in that lighthearted really comedy i mean sweet comedy i i i was sort of the motor in a way uh for any sort of uh, um friction or uh, uh you know challenges i'm so disappointed in cameron 20 bucks says he's sitting in his car debating about whether or not he should go out he'll keep calling me he'll keep calling me until i come over he'll make me feel guilty this this is ridiculous okay i'll go i'll go i'll go i'll go i'll go with i'll go shit so i worked very hard on that and um it came out and you know it did well i mean it's, this is so ridiculous this is so long ago we were the number 10 box office movie for the year it, it made 77 million dollars and i understand <laughs> you wouldn't be you wouldn't be in the top 20 probably you know yeah and that kind of movie wouldn't be in the top 20 no no um uh and so i i knew we did did a good job and uh but uh, the cultural impact thing i actually really disliked that movie for a while there was a period not too long after there uh, where i i couldn't seem to get any work things were not so great and then i thought maybe well that's it that was like my one shot and you know, i need to go find another way to make a living no 
So then I wasn't really that happy about Ferris, but then um, things got better. Was that because people was that because people only saw you as that character, that thing of sort of yeah. being I mean, it was like it was like too successful in a way that they you couldn't break out of it? Yeah. I mean, I was talking with my friend Richard Kind last night and he, he said, I don't want to be remembered. <laughs> he, he said, I don't want to be Carol O'Connor. I don't want to be Henry Winkler, you know, where people are kind of Archie or Yafonzi, or, you know, because he just wants to play, and you know, like most actors do a lot of different parts and, and hopefully be well received in, in all of them. But um, even somebody recently said in writing about this show, they said, Alan Ruck, who will always be Cameron, <laughs> you know, it's like, so uh, uh, there was some of that uh, resentment, like I, I couldn't escape it. And, and maybe I shouldn't have. Uh, I don't know. I wouldn't have done anything any differently. Yeah. I mean, you've you've worked, you know, consistently for 40 something years now. Um, but it does feel like if there was something that was going to make it so that you weren't always Cameron and and you, you weren't that that's not the thing you were always known for. It has been this show. And that's that's that must have changed things for you. And after a long time. Right. Yeah, it, it's um, I wanted a show like this for so long that was, you know, basically uh, ostensibly a drama, but was just wickedly funny. And uh, I did a pilot for a, a TV show about 35 years ago about photojournalists in Vietnam. And it was it had even though it was a network show, um, it had a similar tone that it was very serious. The backdrop was Vietnam. We were photographers and people were dying and all that. But the camaraderie uh, among the press corps was just like raunchy. I mean, as raunchy as you can get for NBC, but like just like raunchy, ornery, uh, witty dialogue, you know, and uh, and it didn't go. I mean, obviously, but I'd been looking for something like that ever since. And then this showed up and, and was, you know, beyond my wildest dreams. So how, given that, how do you feel now that it's officially over now that the, the last episode has aired? I mean. I, I don't know if it was a lot of people felt like maybe it was time to end it, but did you hope it would go on longer? Did you urge uh, Jesse Armstrong to keep going after you asked to be killed off? Well, you know, I'm so glad that they they um, said, no, we're keeping you because then, you know, frankly, we got nice raises <laughs> in our, thir our in our third season. So I'm glad I didn't miss that. Um, uh You know, uh, uh, somewhere I think it was in the third season, uh, a journalist asked uh, Georgia Pritchett, how long do you think it'll go? And she said, no more than five, probably four. And at the time, I didn't want to hear that because I was like, this is the ride of my life, you know? And uh, now I, I know it was exactly right. And I think Jesse's very smart that um, we we went out on the highest note possible for our show. And it would have it would have been a disgrace to to do an additional season just to make money or just because... We love every, I mean, I'm crazy about the the crew and the cast. They're just wonderful people. And if it was just a selfish thing like that, like, I don't want to give this up because it's too much fun. It would have been a great disservice to the show and it would have turned into something um, sad. Yeah. Uh, you know. I, I'm already hearing some people saying, you know, predicting that there's going to be a movie some somewhere down the line, uh, you know, uh, another season, uh, a Christmas special in the in the UK tradition. Um, <laughs> could you imagine anything like that? Is there any a, a Christmas special? <laughs> I don't know. I, I don't know what that would be. The only thing that I thought, and I was talking with Nick Braun, I said the only thing I could see is like the disgusting brothers. Somehow yeah, you the and spinoff. <laughs> yeah, and he said. He said, but that would be wildly different in tone from succession. And they'd have to go back to like Jesse's comedy roots. And that, and he said, he said, and I don't think Matthew or I would really want to do that because there was something so pure in a way about this show that you kind of don't want to tart it up with a bunch of, you know, just like hanging ornaments on it to keep it going. It would be, it would be not good. What doors do you feel like this job has opened for you now? I mean, to me, uh, your performance in in that show, The Dropout, um, was one example of something that I just felt like maybe came out of people seeing you on Succession. And I thought you were really wonderful and, and hilarious on that show. Um, has it changed the types of roles that you're you're being offered? Yeah, well, to tell you the truth, before this show, I didn't get I got offers to maybe do like an episode of this, that or the other thing. It wasn't like I got 
offers to do a movie, like, we want you to do this movie. Do you want to do it? I always usually had to go in and meet people, read for them, whatever. And I'd made peace with that. But now people are just calling up and saying, would you like to do this? Uh, which is very nice. And and um, huge. yeah, and I've waited for it for a long time. And it's very, very satisfying to just that somebody clocks your work and they're like, oh, yeah, that part we have, he could totally do that. See if he wants to do it. Um, so that's what this show has done for me, among other things, but just in, in terms of uh, being on a show that got so much attention, so much positive attention. And so then uh, a lot of that came my way. Some of that came my way and it has improved my uh, my working life. Are there things that you want to do in this business that you haven't been able to do before this that you now think that you might be able to? I, I don't know that... Um, I'm a director at all. I mean, I think if that, if I had those genes, I think they would have shown themselves by now. You know, uh, there's some people that are just born to do it and it's a distinct separate talent uh, from acting talent. Um, I've written some stuff that nobody ever needs to read. And uh, <laughs> uh, uh, I mean, like some short stories and stuff that are okay, but you know, not, I'm not a, I'm not a screenwriter. And uh, maybe if, if uh, I had, access to some really good material and some money i would like to produce some things um but we'll see what happens you know well i could certainly imagine you being at the center of a you know film or, or tv project in a way that you haven't really been able to to do before yeah i think well at, at this age too being like you know uh a, an old cisgender white man <laughs> there's different things. There's different things that are opening up for me. Uh, I'm getting offered pricks and bastards, which <laughs> and they wouldn't consider me uh, for that stuff before. So maybe it's the age I am now, and maybe it's you know uh, uh, the succession influence. But um, I'm I'm getting offered more interesting parts, just not like you know the goofy sidekick or you know. Yeah. So people people finally see you as, as something more than than Cameron. Yeah. Yeah, they do. It's really satisfying. So now it's time for our segment called The First Laugh. So I'm going to ask you a series of questions about some firsts in your in your life and career um, around comedy. Um, going all the way back to childhood, do you remember the first piece of comedy that made you laugh really hard as a kid? It was probably um, Bill Dana, Jose Jimenez. Remember, this is a long time. I mean, I'm old. Um <laughs> But I used to, you know, when I, there were only three channels when I was a kid and uh, you watch, I watched stuff with my parents and my dad was usually the one who picked the show. So I'd watch Ed Sullivan, the Ed Sullivan show on Sunday nights. And uh, it was stuff like that when I was really little, like Topo Gijo, the the, the little mouse, and the, the ventriloquist and stuff like that cracked me up. Yeah. Do you remember the first time that you knew that you were funny, that you had the ability to make other people laugh? Um, that became... Uh, pretty clear in high school. I mean, my family thought I was funny. My, uh, I had an aunt who used to call me the Senator. Apparently I had, a, a, a an older cousin. One of my mother's older brothers had a, a, a son who's like 20 years older than me. And when he was little, he would just, he would just hold, hold forth like five years old and just start, you know, telling stories and, and kind of bossing people around and they called him the Senator. And so then when I was little, I started to exhibit some of that same stuff. And my aunt pointed, pointed at me and said, it's the Senator all over again. So I was funny. I, even my family thought I was funny, but uh, in terms of other people, it was in high school starting to do plays. And I was like, Oh yeah, I can do this. I'm sure you have uh, done many, many auditions over, over the many years. Um, is there a, story that stands out from for an audition you did um perhaps for something that that you didn't get oh wait there was a lot of those <laughs> um let's see um well this is funny uh this is actually fairly recent steven root and i were called in for uh, a network test for some like sidekick part in a, a sitcom and um we were over 20th century fox and they always make you show up. It's like you and like the four other guys they want or, you know, are going to show to the big bosses. And you have to sit in the room and stare at each other. And you all know why you're there. You know, they right. And you just try to be quiet and, you know, not lose your mind. And um, so uh, Stephen went in and did his thing and they told him to wait. 
and I went in and did my thing and they told me to wait. And the other um, contestants, so to speak, were three of the most beautiful black men you've ever seen in your life. <laughs> I mean, they were, they were like stunning leading men, you know? So it's like already they don't know what they're looking for. Right. Yeah. This yeah, could go some different ways. They're going to have some choices. And so then um, I think uh, Stephen and I both in, went in a second time and then uh, we were sitting and the lady came out and she said, Stephen, Alan, you can go. Thank you. <laughs> and so Steve and I walk out and we're in the parking lot walking toward the, you know, the structure. And he puts his arm around my shoulder and goes, well, baby, it ain't us. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. uh, but I mean, there's a lot. Oh, God, yeah. I can't remember. Oh, yeah. oh, here's a weird one. There was this after Groundhog Day came out, there was like the TV version, the TV movie of Groundhog Day. But it wasn't very good. It was wasn't very good. And um I was auditioning for everything at that point because I needed money. And so it's like, we have an audition for you for this thing. And I went in and I, I thought it was stupid. You know, I, I, I just didn't think, and I, I just kind of couldn't connect to it. And so I'm in the audition, I'm reading for the, the director and the, the casting director. And um, in the middle of it, I said, you guys, I'm sorry. I, I, I'm sorry if I've wasted your time. I said, but I just don't, I don't have it. I, I don't have, I don't have it today with this. And I, I'm, I'm sorry. It's just not, it's not going to go. It's not going to work. And they're like, that's okay. That's okay. We're not machines. Of course, Alan, don't worry about it. And the director puts his arm around me and walks me to the elevators and gives me this big speech about how he used to play a lot of squash. And some days he could do no wrong. And other days he couldn't get his racket on the ball. So it's just, you know, don't worry about it, kid. And, um, I go home and I immediately get a call from my manager and she's like, what the fuck happened? And I'm like, what do you mean? She said, they called and they were outraged. They said you were embarrassing. They said it was horrible. They said that they didn't know where to look. And uh, I said, well, fuck you. And I, to her, but I went back the next day because it was a groundhog day. Yeah. yeah. Groundhog I day. Went back the next day to her office because I knew they were having more auditions at exactly the same time. <laughs> Right. So it was kind of like Groundhog Day and it scared the shit out of them. And they were like, whoa, 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 what was that? And I'm like, I'm here to read. <laughs> and I did everything just kind of like flat and stupid with a big smile. I said, OK, because I just didn't want to leave it on their terms, you know, because that's I, hilarious. <laughs> I felt they were being wildly unfair. Finally, is there a story or memory from your career that makes you laugh now, but really was not funny when it happened? <laughs> oh, oh, God. Uh, yeah. Um, I, again, Biloxi blues and, um, we were just really squirrely on that show. I mean, I was in my twenties, I was old enough to know better, but we were just like crazy and we'd gotten busted a couple of times for laughing on stage and we were pretty arrogant. <laughs> you know? and so anyway, Matthew Broderick had this big scene with Penny Miller at the end of the show. It was like the penultimate scene and, uh, it's a goodbye love scene. And, um, and then the end, we were all on the train part of the set like going you know being shipped out to war uh and we were all supposed to be asleep on the on the train so i had my shoes in my hand and i'm just waiting off stage right and i look up and on a hook is a hoodie and one of those zipper hoodies right so i said to brian tarantino who's no longer with us but i said brian zip me up in this thing and so he zipped me up so my arms were inside the body of the thing and we put the hands of the, the hoodie in the pockets. And then I put my shoes on my hands and I got down in a, like a push-up position, like an up dog position. And I walked right to the edge of the proscenium and I had Brian squinch the face, you know, so it was like a pointy, <laughs> a pointy uh, hoodie with a little squinched face like this. And I look like a gnome, you know, I look like a gnome. And so I, I was standing there just off stage and Matthew happened to glance over at me. And then I leaned against the proscenium and crossed my uh, hands like I was crossing my legs, you know. <laughs> and he started to laugh. Penny Miller was so furious. She wanted to kill me. She wanted to kill me. And we could hear her. She was in the trap room screaming her guts out while we were doing the, <laughs> the final scene of the, <laughs> the play. And Matthew was talking to the audience, you know, explaining what was going on. Then he'd say to me, and, you know, sort of what he'd say, she's going to murder you. <laughs> insane and then uh, we all got in very big trouble very very big trouble for that uh and we were put on notice that if we ever did anything like crossed our eyes at each other or or uh took too long a pause in any particular we would be fired on the spot you know and so guess, now yeah 
now i mean it started out as like a gag and then t- went horribly wrong and uh, we all got in desperate trouble. <laughs> I guess that's how boring it can get doing the same show uh, eight times a week. Yeah, I mean, when I was younger, I really loved being uh, in plays, and um, I, I'm, I, maybe it's just an age thing, but it just seems like awfully hard work. I think movies and and television shows are so much more civilized because you might work twelve hours a day, but you have your weekends off. <laughs> you know, you're probably not going to get called in every day. Eight shows a week. I, I don't know who thought that up, but it was no actor, I can tell yeah. you. Um, <laughs> but if, there, if something was like perfect and wonderful, I, uh, maybe I'd do one last play, but it takes <laughs> well, a lot. Of yeah. yeah. Um, Alan, thank you so much for doing this. And seriously, congratulations on this four season run of succession. It's, I think, one of the, the great achievements of, of television and, and you were a huge part of it. Um, so uh, it's been really a pleasure talking with you about it. Thanks, Matt. Nice talking with you. Thank you so much to Alan Ruck for being my guest on this week's show. All four seasons of Succession are available to stream right now on Max. And if for some reason you haven't seen The Dropout, it's on Hulu and Alan is also fantastic on it. If you want to support The Last Laugh, please help us out by leaving a rating and review on Apple Podcasts. We want as many people to hear this show as possible, and you can help by spreading the word and sharing it with your friends. You can find me on Twitter at Matt Wilstein and at TheDailyBeast.com. And if you're not already, please follow at LastLaughPod on Instagram, where you can see photos and videos from all of our episodes and see who is coming up next week on the show. The Last Laugh is distributed by Acast for The Daily Beast, with audio production by Jesse Cannon. Our theme music is by Claude, who you can find on Instagram at Claude.mp3. You can find this show every week on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. And as always, you can find show notes and highlights from each episode on thedailybeast.com. See you next week. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.